Should be good. There we go. I'm going to start with a, uh, <clears throat> an admission um, that this, this passage changed for me. The one we're, we're studying today changed for me during the week, which really threw the sermon off. It, it happened partway through as I was developing this sermon, and, and what this passage really seemed to say that I think applies to us changed. And so the first service got to experience me doing a little bit of almost rewriting in my brain as, we were, as I was talking through it, as I was still wrestling with, which is something I try not to do too much. I, I often uh, reference, you'll hear people say sometimes that, that people who are worship leaders, for example, aren't worship leaders, they're lead worshipers, which sounds clever, it's just not accurate. It's, um, uh, they have to lead up on stage. That's what makes John and this team that he has so amazing is that that they're not up there just worshiping, you know, hoping that we're in the room. They are leading us to worship. That's vitally important. Um, they need to be lead worshipers, but that's not going to be done in front of us. They're leading us on Sunday morning. Um, and in the same way, it's not typical for me to come up and start wrestling with a passage in front of you on Sunday morning. Usually, that's done before now so that I can lead you through your wrestling of it um, on Sunday morning. And um, uh, so this morning... With the exception of the first service, which I'm glad I had that there in place for you guys, but um, it, it's, uh, it has been a passage I've continued to wrestle through even now, and I'm continuing to do so, um, because it, it, did not, uh, it did not speak the way I thought it would when I got started, and even when I got started into it. Um, the problem is that what ended up coming like out of this passage to me is super important. Um, I think this insight is the root of why the Church of America has lost its role in cultural leadership. I think that's in here. I think this is why so many people stop gathering together in church in small groups. The real reason they do is in here. And, and even the, um, the fact that the influence that we lose in the lives of our children um, or in our, the lives of our neighbors... I think is, is largely here, and even in the lives of our spouses and friends. Here's what stood out to me. So I'm going to go and tell you now. Like, I'm not going to build up to it or anything. I'm just going to tell you now what began to, partway through wrestling with this passage, began to come out to me. I can't take credit for it. Two different commentaries began to talk about this as I was going through it, and I realized, man, this is just shocking to me. And this, this may not be shocking to you. Maybe this is how you've always read The Woman at the Well. But for me, this was shocking. This woman... With all of her baggage, with all of her stuff, um, is portrayed with us intentionally, no matter how you try to interpret this, the purpose of telling us about her five previous marriages and the fact that she's living with a man she's not married to now is to portray her as a woman whose life is a train wreck. That this woman, there is something broken about this woman's life. Has she, has she had affairs and that's why all these men keep divorcing her? Is that the problem, that she can't be faithful? Is she so bad at choosing men that she keeps choosing, um, controlling or dominating or abusive or narcissistic or something men who every one of them dump her when, when, it's, when the time seems right? I, I, we don't know that. What we know is there's something so broken in this woman's life that, that 2,000 years ago she's been married five times and is now cohabitating. That would be somewhat impressive today. Um, where all of these things are culturally rather, rather accepted, you would still be like, that's, that's still kind of impressive. For her, this is, this is life-ending. I mean, this is changing for her whole life that she has this type of train wreck life. And then here's what stood out to me about this passage. Um, what jumped out at me and what was thrown in my face by these commentaries was this. 
She is in the presence of Jesus Christ. She has a one-on-one conversation with Jesus Christ. Not many people have that. Even in the Bible, not many people have one-on-one conversations with him. She gets to meet with him in person, just the two of them, a one-on-one counseling, mentoring, whatever session. And she does not catch on to the fact that she ought to be talking with him about her broken, messed up life. That everyone who knows her would say, hey, make sure the first chance you get to talk to somebody about this jacked up life you've got. But not her. And this is what stands out to me, is that there are things in our lives, there's things about us as a church, there's things about us as families, there's things about us as individuals, that everyone else around us knows, man, it would be a miracle if God worked on that. So we work on everything else. It, it, is, it is easily the most discouraging thing about being a pastor. I don't think there's a close second to this. The easiest thing, the most discouraging thing about being a pastor is there being someone who is in sermons and life groups and Sunday school classes and all these different things for year after year after year and hour after hour after hour. And, and it seems like without even that much difficulty... They are living in something. They are choosing something or failing to engage with something that is so blatantly and blaringly obvious to everyone else around them. But they seem untouched by the power of God's word, by the power of God's community. They seem absolutely unaffected in this specific area or these areas. And here we have this shown to us in such shocking just clarity with this woman that here you have a woman who's never, at no point until the very end, is she even going to begin to respond to the, the very obvious thing that she should be spending time. She has a limited amount of time with this man, and it is in the last seconds of her time with him before she even begins to catch on. Until then, it is cluelessness, it is distraction, it is, it is misdirection, it's all of that. So we're going to jump into this passage, but what, discovered, what, what struck me about this is that this is... This is what we need to hear in the American church. We love to pick on the sins that we don't wrestle with. We love that. And we have rightfully been called out by it, on it over and over and over again, and we don't seem to be getting it. And we, we want to discuss fine points about this or that. We want to discuss about preferences, um, about whatever Whereas we don't deal with our own bigotry, our own unkindness, our own rage, addiction, arrogance cruelty. We don't deal with those. Everyone, everyone who has to deal with us knows what these things are like. They're embarrassed by how we treat other people. They're embarrassed by the way we talk about things. They're embarrassed about what we post on social media. But man, we are quick to then throw a verse right behind it or to then ask us some kind of preferential question. Hey, what's about the drums on stage? Or, or I don't know that these are the right kind of chairs. Or man, we're going to pick something and we're not going to deal with the thing that God really desperately is seeking for people to worship in him with who they are. I think that Jesus' answer to her that begins this part of the conversation is very much so for us. If you just knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. Does Jesus have a problem? Yeah, he doesn't have a way to get water. But what strikes me, what struck me this week is, but she has a problem. I mean, she has a serious problem. She, she's... 
got this train wreck of a life. She has a serious problem, and she can't ever seem to catch on to that as they're going through this conversation. That boggled my mind and scared me a little bit. That, that we want to be, what we need to be doing is engaging with the areas that we know or that we should be turning over to God and asking him to engage with us in these areas to grow us and change us and, these th- and et cetera. Meanwhile, we're going, yeah, but, well, and, and this, and look over there. So we ended Jesus talking about that. By the way, I, I've also found over the years, uh, I've not been doing this long, but over the years I have been doing it, that people will, that, that, that at this point, some of you are going like, man, somebody sent him an email. And he's, he's calling them out in the whole front of the whole church right now. Like, he's not, he's not saying who it is. He's not naming names. But he's like, listen, nothing like that. If you're in your head, you're going like, wow, he's really mad at me about what I said last week. No, I'm not. I don't even remember. I promise. Like, that has nothing to do with, this is purely the, this passage and the commentary that I read about this passage that struck me that this is who we are. This has come to define us in so many ways as individuals, that especially in the Christian church, especially here. That man, we are, we just, this, we want to talk about this theological minutia over here. Meanwhile, of course, this. That everyone in the world was like, no, no, you want a miracle? That would be a miracle. If this guy learned to control his temper, that would prove to me that Jesus Christ was real and had a real impact in his life, and maybe I would follow that Jesus Christ all my life. As it is, the first chance I get out of this house, I'm done with him because of this man's temper, because of this person's problems, because of this per- they're not dealing with them. They have this serious issue. They're not even getting help on it. They just defray it. That I do hear about week after week after week. So... Man, this, this is straight in our face. I hope that you see yourself in this. Or I'm, I'm sorry if you see yourself in it at the same time. I know I do. So the woman says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do we get this living water? Again, she's, she's, she's stuck on the physical. Jesus is trying to have a spiritual conversation, which you would think, this woman would say, living water, that sounds like a metaphor. Do you have something to tell me, Jesus, whoever you are? Like, do you have something I need? Hey, I've got a question. I don't, my life doesn't feel like it's flowing too smoothly. Maybe some living water would be nice for... Nope. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's stuck in the physical. Does it remind you of anybody? It should, although it's been a month, six weeks since we talked about him. John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, speaking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus is trying to speak in spiritual terms, and Nicodemus doesn't get it. He has this kind of gross, icky, creepy response that he gives to Jesus about climbing back in his mother's womb. And, and who, who thinks that way? But this is a... It's even, even he's not like going like, oh, clearly a metaphor. What are you trying to say to me? It's, how could this be that she does it? She's, this passage is all about this. She understands he's claiming there's another source, but she can't fathom what it is. So she's still thinking water. There's, there's an interesting mixture. She says, Lord, or, or, or she says, sir, when she says it, Lord, um, the, the language there, depending on your version, but she still seems very skeptical, maybe even mocking. Jesus, uh, Jacob himself drank from this well. And his children, who are, who are Jacob's children? Israel. That's right, the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Is this some Samaritan pride? Is this, is this some pride that she, she's got going, listen, you Jews, you think you're all important, but I'm telling you, the well that kept us all alive is here in Samaria. I don't know. I don't know exactly the point she's making, but it is definitely, everyone agrees it's a trap. Our father, Jacob, is a trap. This is meant to be a problem. Jesus is supposed to go, what do you mean our father? He's my father. I'm a Jew. You're, you're just a Samaritan. He's not really, that's, that, that, this is clearly a trap. She's picking a fight with Jesus. Again, not talking about what she ought to be talking about. Strike two. Here we go. She, she says, this, this, is the, this is the situation married five times with another man hiding from the women in the village, yet she doesn't even suspect that he may be talking about the needs of her soul. She doesn't even suspect it. How blind are we? And the answer is very, by the way, in case you've ever met any people. This is a, somebody asked me this week a question that I thought would work its way in here very nicely. Somebody asked me a question about this kind of, the, this, this kind of a psychological movement called mindfulness. Um, and, and in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with mindfulness. Mindfulness is just to, to attempt to be fully present in the moment. It's kind of a, a meditation concept. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's an absolutely neutral concept. It's, it's good for humans to learn to live that way. C.S. Lewis talks about how important it is that, that Satan wants us to live in the future or in the past and God wants us to live in the present or in eternity. That, this, that the present is where eternity touches time. That that's how we're supposed to live, in the present and experience. Um, there's pl- plenty of biblical concepts about this. Being still and recognizing he's God. Experiencing this moment. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. When we take communion in a little bit, I'm going to encourage you that as, as Paul leads you through that, to, to take that bread and to take that wine, to, to be in that moment. Stop, don't be thinking about lunch later or, or what's coming, but to be in that moment of experiencing him in that. However, this idea that this is just a, that somehow this is automatically positive to just be present with yourself, I hate to tell you, but you're going to bring yourself there. You're still going to be there. And if all you've got to is, is mindfulness about you, you're going to be disappointed. It's what she lacks. She's, she's def, de, def, deflecting everywhere. My, my dad, the forestry professor, he used, also was a dean for a while, and he would say, um, uh, he would have students come in all the time, who would say, especially when he was a professor like in the 70s, this is super popular, is that students would come in and say, oh, man, I need to, I'm taking off the next semester and I'm going to go bum around Europe to kind of find myself. Some of you are old enough to remember that terminology, find, I'm going to go find myself. And so my dad being the pragmatic man that he is, he would say, um, well, I'll tell you what, I'll help you out. And he would get up and he would lead them out of his office to a, there was a, a map of the entire forestry building there right outside his office. And he would, he would roll over to the map, and, and of course there was a little red dot with an arrow on that map, and it said, you're here. And he would say, um, I just saved you, the, saved you time and money, like we found you. You're right here. We're good. Sign up for classes. Like this was his, that was his uh, therapeutic technique. Um, this concept is, is valuable, awareness and responsiveness, but make sure that, that what you're trying to do is to be present with God in that moment, not just present in that moment by yourself. You can be in a room full of people like this and be fantastically lonely. Um, you can be taking communion with a room full of believers in a few minutes and be completely isolated in your heart. That's not what God has called us to. Yes, be aware of who you are and then ask God to reveal to you who you are and then ask God to change who you are, to transform who we are. She asked him, are you greater than Jacob? 
Jesus, is, of course, doesn't bite on the bait and doesn't really answer her question. He answers the question she should have asked. Just like his conversation with Nicodemus. It's, it's a weird kind of series of non sequiturs. She kind, he kind of answers, but kind of doesn't. The body requires constant refreshment. But Jesus says that's not how it's going to be here. And this is a, by the way, this is a really important verse for us here at South Spring. This is maybe a, this is one of our two key verses for how we kind of develop the name that we have. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Because the water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. This is actually, this concept is, like I said, where we get it. That plus this one, sorry, again, I'm doing it again to you, David. It's a little out of order. Exodus 17. The Lord said to Moses, pass before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so on the side of the elders. The people of Israel were out in the desert, um, not far from the Salt Sea. And there is nothing out there when it comes to drinkable water. Nothing. Um, Not enough for uh, hundreds of thousands of people. And so the people were complaining about how thirsty they were. And so Moses goes and complains to God. And God provides the answer. And and, uh, Moses goes and strikes a rock. and, And water begins to flow from this rock. This is part of the picture that we have. So this is the picture we start with. This is this was the start of our logo is the rock, a stone. That's that's our hearts before we know Christ is is just stacked stone. And there's there's no life there. And remember for the Jewish mind moving water is alive. It's living water is how they see it. And so when Jesus grabs hold of us when his spirit comes into our lives and we put our faith in Jesus Christ something changes and the inside of us becomes living like living water, something begins to change inside of us. And through the process of discipleship and through the process of of being changed and grown, we become ministers. And as ministers, that actually flows out of us like a spring, what Jesus is talking about here. That where we go, the spring is created. Um, uh, You've heard us reference the idea of of that that Christians aren't, we're not somehow more special. We're just beggars who know where the bread is. Um, There's an old Buddhist parable that I love about um, that, that the Buddha told you, allegedly used to tell the story of three men trapped and lost in the desert. And they find a wall, and, and he says, you find the wall, and, and they go over. The first one goes over the wall, and there's a, uh, a spring there and, 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 a, and an oasis. And so the second one goes, and they jumps in, and so does the second one. And the third one comes and sees this, this beautiful um, oasis that's there. And instead of jumping down into the oasis, he goes back out in the desert to find lost people to bring them to the oasis. I've always thought after studying um, world religions that if, that if the Buddha had lived 400 years later and had been in Israel, he might have gotten along real well with Jesus. A lot of the stories they tell are similar in that way, but here's what struck me. That parable still falls apart because unlike the, the Buddhist parable, we carry the spring with us. We go back out of the desert with the spring. We're like beggars who have bread. Like we, he's, He lives in us with us. They're interacting with what it is they need when they interact with us. That's the, allegedly, that's how it's supposed to work. We actually have a, um, a video version of this that, uh, that a company made for us that we use in our videos to exemplify, kind of exemplify this, which I think is really cool. That's pretty good, huh? That's, you see it in our videos all the time. So that's, that's a... That, that idea of us being like a spring. And here's another thing that's cool, another visual for you is we don't, we're, this is not about uniformity. We're not all the same. We are having the same goal. So the, uh, the, the bad news is I put these up here and I had somebody first service, the first question was what age group painted these? 
Um, the answer is the staff painted these. And, uh, but you can see, you can, this, was, this was part of our project as when we were on our staff retreat was this idea of being a spring, of being an oasis. This is who we are as a church. And, and I asked them to meditate on these passages while we painted this some and, and to say, so as we're moving forward, what is this? But notice, um, they're very different from one another, even though they're all an oasis and we had the same teacher and we had the same painting we were all looking at, the way we each painted it is it's not uniformity, it is unity. So we're all painting the same thing, we're all working for the same goal, we all serve the same Lord, but we do it differently, we have different temperaments and, we're, and, we, and, and we are different sexes and we have different backgrounds and we all these different things that are different for us that we live these out There are going to be differences even though we're pursuing the same thing. The way you are able to live out being the spring may be a little bit different. But what's vital is that people see this lived out in us. We try, we fail, and we we try to live out church the way God would want us to, not the way we would want to, not the way I would want to, not the way you would want to, not the way the Baptist world would want to, not the way the Tyler world would want to. We want to live this out as his church. It is his church. And you can... You can fail to follow Jesus. That is talked about in the teaching on communion again and in um, the idea that Moses the next time struck the rock again even though this time God had told him to speak to the rock. So that is a, we can do it wrong and so for us to be intentional about living this out and trying to follow what God has for us. So, but she still isn't getting it. Nicodemus didn't get it as a teacher. Now the opposite, the side of the heap, she doesn't get it either. Verse 13 or uh, 15, the woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so I will not be thirsty. You have to come back here and draw water. She's still stuck on the water. It still hasn't crossed over in her mind that he may be talking about the problems in her soul, in her life, not just coming out to the well. Sounds good. I don't have to come back out here at noon anymore. That'll be awesome. Maybe she's even dubious. All right, call. Let's see it. I want to see this living water you've got. And Jesus says to her, great, go call your husband and come back. And the woman said to him, I have no husband. Talk about speaking the technical truth. Deceptive without lying. And Jesus said to her, well, at least you're right to say you don't have a husband. He catches her in the lie. The Spirit gives him a supernatural insight here to speak the truth back to her. You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. So... What you've said is technically true. At least you didn't just bald face lie to me. She's still stone on the inside. It's just stacked rocks. And Jesus has just struck the stone. So she deflects. So he strikes it again. And through the power of the Spirit, he reveals the shame that she's grown numb to and has buried and keeps hidden, especially around someone like this. And Jesus reveals it to her. So here's the stunning moment. The realization that should have come to him in this moment is not only does this man speaking to me, though he's a Jew, not only is he speaking to me, though, but even though he's a man, not only is he speaking to me, even though he's a religious person, but he's speaking to me knowing what my life has been. And he is still caring to speak to me. That should have been the response or to be stunned by this. And I think partially it is. Just a, just a quick, quick to comment on the fact that she's living with somebody, this will be another talk at another time maybe, but we, we now are pretty sure through the research done and, and that most couples nowadays um, in America live together. First, they see it as a part of the process to getting married. You date 
or you, you talk and then you, then you date and then you move in and live together and then you get engaged and you get married. And the couples who do those last two stages, if they live together first, are 33% more likely to end up divorced than people who leave that step out. Which doesn't make a lot of sense. Seems like, well, if you, if you lived with them for a few years, in fact, something like, I think the most recent research was that 67% of couples live together for at least two years before they get married. That's, that's soup. Apparently, that's now the norm. And so they, they live together, but also so is divorce. Divorce is also the norm. It's, it's kind of assumed for most couples when they get married is that this is my first marriage. Now, this is a, this is, obviously, it's, that's pretty awful. It's pretty tragic, and it's tough on kids and all that kind of stuff that you can imagine, which I'm not going get, to get into today. But why? Well, that's been kind of researched out, too. It turns out it's a mindset. It's the mindset of cohabitation that leads to the divorce. It's the mindset that says, I'm test driving somebody. I'm trying someone on to see if it's a good fit. That's the mindset, which makes sense, which is what people say. There's a kind of a pragmatic value to that, right? Well, you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it first, right? You're, I'm going to marry somebody without test driving them? That seems dumb. But there's a problem with that, and that is that what do you, what do, you do with a car when it stops performing the way you want? You trade it in for a younger model, right? That's the process. If you're marrying somebody because of their performance value in your life... It's only a matter of time before they fail to perform the way you like, so you just move on to somebody else. We don't marry people because of their performance value. We marry them because of their treasure value. This is a treasure in God's kingdom, and we marry them and choose them because of that. This woman's made these decisions over and over again and is still making them. Again, we don't know her story beyond that, but she says to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Finally, someone to talk to about my messed up life. Finally, someone to explain to me how I'm doing this over and over and over again, the same pattern. Finally, someone to talk to me about how my... No, that's not what she says. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Really? This is what's kept this woman up at night. Up at night, as husband after husband leaves her and divorces her, night after night, as she's laid there, what she's been thinking is, man, I would love to meet a man of God someday so that he could answer my pressing, burning question about whether or not the Jews have it right about the temple in Jerusalem or whether we Samaritans have it right about the mountain. And really? Talk about distraction. How hard is it to do this? Her supernatural knowledge about her life indicates it. She gets it, but now it's still a dodge. Listen to what um, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, three Scottish pastors from the late 1800s, wrote about this. 1871, they wrote, she ingeniously shifts the subject from personal to public question. It is not, alas, what a wicked life I am leading. But, lo, what a wonderful prophet I got into a conversation with. He will be able to settle that interminable dispute between us and the Jews. Sir, you must know all about such matters. Our fathers hold to this mountain here, pointing to Gerizim and Samaria, as the divinely consecrated place of worship. But ye Jews say that Jerusalem is the proper place. Which of us is right? Scots have always been sarcastic, even in the 1870s. <laughs> Listen to this phrase. How slowly does the human heart submit to thorough humiliation? Wow. That's the line that made me have to go back and reinterpret the entire passage. And we write it. How slowly does the human heart submit to thorough humiliation? How slow is a church to do that? We have, we have raging problems in our midst. The level of, the level of bigotry and prejudice, the, the level of, 
of hatefulness and dissension. And we love to focus on the sexual sins that allegedly, at least most of us publicly, aren't engaging that much in. I guess we keep those more private. But we love to focus on those sins in other people's lives. But you realize, you'll hear people periodically, we ought to kick this person out of the church or that person out of the church. And, and hey, maybe, they, maybe we should. Biblically, I see the case. But what people don't realize is there's more passages about kicking divisive people out of the church than anybody else. Are we comfortable with that as a church policy? Hey, listen, if you come and you complain to me about somebody else, you're divisive, we're going to have to remove you. Wow. Instead, we, we, don't fo- we want to focus on other people's sins, not ours. We want to focus on other people's problems, not ours. This, we are just like this woman. I plan to divorce my spouse without biblical cause, but I wonder what your views are about this specific little detail. Um, I'm, I'm angry, impatient, unkind, but I have strong spiritual opinions about preferences in the churches. I have this, this raging addiction that's clear to everybody in my life that I can't, I can't even, I'm not willing to even get help on, but what's with the drums and worship? How can we use chairs rather than pews? We, we link these things to our political causes, whatever. Jesus said to her, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you tithe your dill and your mint, which they weren't required to do, but you lack mercy. And he's not impressed. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain in Jerusalem or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. It is here and it is now. It seems like this is a perfect moment. I'm going to ask Paul to come up and ask the the deacons to go to the stations uh, around where the communion uh, bread and juice is. Um, But uh, first service, Paul really shared a cool thing, which I, I want to link to this. That, that, that worship is not, and, and even when we do a special thing like this, like don't get the impression it's like, oh cool, now we're doing communion and that's when we worship. No. Every meal for us is worship. Every, every day, all through the day, this is worship. Worship is supposed to be spirit and truth in us at all times. So, Paul, take it away, man. Yeah, because in the same way that we've just seen Jesus now proclaim to this woman that he is the source of water and the provision for her. Similarly, here in the next Sunday, we're going to see that he's going to describe himself also as having a food source that the disciples don't know about, doing the will of his father. Uh, and, and it is that same thing as him being that, having that food source that he offers that even to his disciples. Specifically, while they're having a meal, he links and takes a cup of wine. And he says, this is my blood poured out for you. And this, is, this bread is my body broken for you. You see this theme of uh, our provision coming from these sustenances through these meals is not unique to this moment. In fact, it's throughout all of Scripture. From the very first meal we have in the couple first pages of this book, we see a man and a woman sharing an apple. And it is that first meal that breaks them of the way that they were originally created to have a right relationship with God. Puts them in a hopeless state to ever put that right. But God didn't leave them alone there. And actually, he provided for them and told them that there was a provision coming, one that they could put a faith in a coming Savior. This was demonstrated and actually replaced in a second meal that all the Jews celebrated, which was the Passover. Whereas they reflected on their time in, in Israel, it was during that meal that they remembered that they have been provided for. 
a savior is coming that they get to put their faith into and experience salvation one day. But it is here another meal that at a Passover, Jesus creates a new meal for us and says, this is now no longer about a savior who will come. This is about a savior who is here now. I am here. I am such the savior. The same message to the woman. And this is why we celebrate that meal is because now we aren't looking forward to a savior coming. We look back on a savior who has come. We're not celebrating a meal hopeless anymore. We have hope that the same one who put it right in our lives will come back and put all things right again. So this is what I invite you. As we worship in spirit and truth this morning, as we stand and as you go and you get the elements from the corners of the room, I want you to reflect on this truth. Why should we live lives differently? Why should we go out with the spring inside of us and share it to others? Because we know this central truth. We were hopeless, and now we have hope. We know that a Savior has come and will again come and put all things right. So I invite you now to stand, to reflect on these truths as you get those elements and return back to your seats, and we'll partake them together. this hope that we get to share this meal together. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, then really this meal is going to be empty. And it's not going to mean what it means because if we're gathering and proclaiming and remembering what Jesus had done for us, if you haven't done that step, then there's no point in doing this. But don't worry. Even if you already have your cup and your bread with you now, because today could be the day of salvation. Today could be the first day that you take this, remembering that truth for real. You could stop and you could ask him. And you could put your faith in Jesus now and celebrate for the first time, like with River, who put his faith in Jesus last night. This is the meal, a meal of hope, not a meal of hopelessness. This is the meal, not proclaiming a savior to come, but proclaiming one who did come. And this meal in and of itself is also temporal. It will be replaced. We won't take it in the same way because one day we will be sitting, not remembering what Jesus has done, but experiencing him himself at the great feast. But until then, for now, as the apostle Paul said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on this night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that in all the ways that you could bring about salvation, you chose to break yourself. Such suffering demonstrated as a testimony of your great love for us. 
And as we remember this work this morning, remind us of a salvation continuing to work out in our lives until you come. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. All right, have a seat. We wrap up this passage. Having experienced, I hope for you, brought to life in new ways, um, this idea of, of worshiping in spirit and in truth, which means worship is not about a location. It's not about a mountain. It's not about a temple. It's not about a church. Worship, worship is about the body of believers coming to Christ and saying, here's what I have for you. What do you have for me? That that's really what it means to live out in worship. That that's how our daily lives are lived. What, this, is, this is what I have. I, I offer this as a living sacrifice. This is, this is what I know. This is what I do. This is how I love people. This is how I love my family and how I love my spouse and how I love um, the people who I interact with. That this is a living sacrifice for me. And, and then to say, now, now what do you have for me? And that's, that's in some ways when it really, in my mind, becomes really worship for me is when I'm saying like, no, now what have you got for me? Because what, what he has for me may not be what I'm looking for, even what I want. He may be going to reveal things in me that I don't want to know about. I don't, listen, I haven't thought about those things in a long time. I don't want to think about those things. And maybe, maybe God is saying, yeah, but you need, to, you need to get that this is who, I know you and I know who you are and I know what's there and I know, and still I came and was broken in obedience to the Father for you. Like that's, that's what we're talking about here. This woman with her messed up life, as I think she's realizing God still, this, this God still loves me, potential. She's wanting to talk about theological minutia. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to imply there's something wrong with talking about church politics or with asking questions about why we worship this way or why we study what we do or why we have chairs rather than pews. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Those just have to be placed in the right order. They have to be within, the, with, within a a Christ-following life, a life inundated with him, with that living water we talked about last week where you have dove, dived, uh, does anyone, where you've jumped in the water and you've gotten all in, you've got, you've got it all like head to toe saturated with this living water, you're living that out, and I promise you it is easy to tell the difference between those conversations. When someone comes whose, whose life is saturated with the living word and they come and they want to talk about issues, it is obviously different than people who are in the other status where they're going like, yeah, I don't want to talk about this issue. I don't want to talk about that issue. I want to ask about this. I don't want to talk about things I need to, and it's hard. You want to do that, don't you? You want to step in and go, listen, we can talk about that, but first, I honestly think that's why God says that, why, why Peter references the idea of men's prayers being hindered um, because of how we treat our wives. That I imagine going, you know, I'd someday some guy marrying one of my daughters and coming to me later having mistreated them and saying like, hey, dad, can I borrow a hundred bucks? I'm going to say, you know what? You and I have one thing to talk about and that's it. We only have one thing to talk about. Nothing else do we have to talk about except for the way you're treating my daughter. It's the only conversation I'm going to have with you. We need to go to God and say, God, what is that one conversation you need to have with me? Reveal to me, create in me a clean heart. Search me and know me. Show me. Reveal to me where it is that I'm, I'm off. Nothing's wrong with these questions, but out of place. The woman says, you know, I've heard that a Messiah is coming. I know that a Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I think she's fishing a little bit now. How are you telling me all things? You're telling me all kinds of things. And Jesus says to her, oh, I speak to you, am he. I don't know about the spirit and truth stuff, but I've heard about a Messiah, and he's going to know all things. And I need to hear this, and apparently you've got this. Finally, at least she's looking in the right direction. She's asking a more appropriate question. 
Just then the disciples come back and they marvel. He's talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Meaning they're not asking the woman any questions. Or why are you talking with her? They're not going to ask Jesus any questions. Being the disciples, they're going to stand awkwardly, having just shown up. Stand there like, like the awkward guys that they are while Jesus is talking to this woman. So the woman left her, jar, her water jar and went in town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. You can imagine her reputation is probably less than stellar. For this woman to say, come, tell me a, uh, come, come meet a man who told me all that I ever did, they would say, like, well, that would be something. Someone who told you all that you ever did, and he still wants to talk to you. Someone who knows you that well. Like, the people see a miracle that's been working out. This woman is now not deflecting or hiding. She is speaking and saying, listen, I want to talk to you about this God who's talked to me about, this guy who talked about everything I ever did, this, this Messiah character. Could he be the Christ? The one thing the Jews and Samaritans do agree on, or one of them, is that there is a Christ coming, a Messiah coming. So the people went out of the town and were coming to him. And we'll pick up there next time. I love that Jesus keeps rolling on her with, rolling with her on this. I mean, he, he's, he stays with her. He, he, he continues to engage with it. He continues to be involved in the conversation with her. Finally, she mentions the Messiah, and he clarifies for her. He makes it clear, that's me. That's me. She gets it enough that at least she goes to tell people that she knows. There's a response to learning who Jesus is. That's why we have an invitation at the end of pretty much every service. Is a reminder, listen, you've been encountered Jesus Christ through his word. There's probably something that needs to change. There's probably something that needs to happen. If God's word is really speaking, there's probably something you've learned new. I know there has been for me. Could this be the one? I wonder if one of the people she goes back to get is her boyfriend. Is it the other five husbands she's married in the past? Does she go to them and say, Someone told me all about what I did. I think we need to go meet him. There's a, so much potential for redemption here, and it's going to happen. You'll see next week. The question for us is, what is our response? That's almost always the question at the end of a biblical passage like this. What is our response? So I, I'm going to pray over us that God would search us, that he would reveal to us the things in our lives that are blindingly apparent to the people who are too afraid to tell us about it. Who, who, who they struggle with. And we've, had, we've heard it, maybe we've heard it, maybe we even know it, but we hide it, we bury it. We don't want to talk about it, we don't want to deal with it. And what we need to be doing is proclaiming, God, send me someone to engage with me on this matter. I need to find someone who can talk to me about this, who can engage with me on this. I need mentoring, I need honesty, I need counseling, I need friendship, I need, I need whatever it is that God wants to put in here in my heart to, to show me so that I can learn to worship in spirit and in truth. I'm going to pray that for us. Father, you are so patient. What a great sign of your patience as your son continues this conversation with this woman. I don't know how long it went, but that she's not getting it. She doesn't want to talk about what she needs to talk about. And God, I pray that you would help us to grow past that. God, I, I pray that if any of us in the room right now are thinking about what someone else should be thinking about, that we would stop and instead ask you to search our heart. If we've already got the answer for somebody else, then probably maybe we're just deflecting too. So I pray that you would help us to be still enough to know that you are God and remember that we are not. And that you love us, you want us to deal with the main things and, and at the same time you love us and you've been loving us even while we haven't. And I pray we will be broken by the power of your word to be transformed into an, a life of living worship. That living water would flow from us and I pray that as we leave this place, the, the world will be refreshed because your spirit 
lives in us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. <laughs>